unhappiest in the saddle. <laughs> a fellow sportsman. I am an FBI agent. Great Scott. What do you say we cut the chit-chat a-hole? Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Come with me if you want to live. Hello, and welcome to Retro Ramble. I'm Charlie McGee. I'm George McGee. And this time, we are going back to 1986 to look at the mammoth film that is Aliens, brought to us by James Cameron. Indeed. This time, it's war. Yeah. Uh, no one can hear you scream in space was the first film's tagline, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, the film that Ridley Scott loves so much that he pretends it doesn't exist. Obviously, Sigourney Weaver, uh, Michael Bean, the lovely Paul Reiser, Lance Hendrickson, and James Horner on music. So we're going to have a lot of fun with this. It's probably going to be one of our, I'd say, lo slightly longer than our episodes. because More we're gonna... indulgent than, than others. There's a lot to cover. There's a lot to cover. There's a lot of love. And uh, we know, if, you know quite a few people have requested us to cover this film. We want to do it justice. Yeah, and obviously it's part of a wider saga. Um, that so, we will touch on. Yeah, that we do touch on. And there's the one thing to point out, we do refer to it throughout the episode that the version we watched when we were younger, recorded off TV or the first video, is different to the version that we've been watching for like the last decade or so, which is the special edition or the director's cut, which has a few more scenes that flesh out some of the characters, mm. especially at the beginning. So when you hear us saying that, apologies if if, if the only version you've ever seen is, say, the... Uh, original. The, the original. Some, some people are purists. Uh, and if you've only ever watched the director's cut, you'll wonder why we are talking about it. But it is... It is interesting to see what James Cameron has gone back. We, we do yeah, spend a bit of time on it, but we would recommend you, if you haven't, uh, seek out the, the director's cut, the special edition, because it adds so much more to the story. Yes, yeah, so and before we dive into it, quick word from George uh, on housekeeping, what you should expect from these types of podcasts if you've uh, not listened before. So we are, we are brothers, we are movie lovers, and we love these films. We go back, we're revisiting them, for, uh, films from our youth. In these episodes, we will talk about how these films came to be, and then we go the, through the films bit by bit. So, so lots of spoilers. There will be spoilers from the very off. Uh, there will be some swearing, so uh, be mindful if you've got small people around and children. Uh, and We're going to poke fun at it with the greatest amount of and, respect. <laughs> and there will be lots of bad impressions as, as per usual. So yeah. there might be us doing alien sounds, uh, <laughs> Bill, Bill Paxton sounds just to name a few but um, we aim to entertain we aim to give you a few bits of trivia that you may not have known so yeah uh, thanks for listening yeah and as i say we we love this film uh, so any jokes that we are making are really just about how much we've enjoyed it and we've watched these from a very young age so there probably are some quite immature points that we make about this film yes juvenile perceptions yeah so we hope you enjoy the episode so sit back and enjoy here it is aliens you're going out there to destroy them that's the plan all right i'm in the first time she survived the most terrifying creature in the universe she thought the nightmare was over something under the floor it hadn't even begun Sigourney Weaver, Aliens, the new movie. This time, it's war. So, George, 
Aliens, 1986. What does this film mean to you? What are your first memories of this film? Well, uh, I well, can I can I surprise you? I didn't see this at the cinema. How come? <laughs> because I would have been three, right? But yeah, I uh, I wasn't a fan of this uh, growing up because I was terrified of it. I'm you know I'm not quite, surprisingly. I'm not not a ashamed to say I'm not really a horror person, and I remember growing up. Might have seen it around when I was about seven or eight. But, you know, for, for fans of this show, uh, there'll be no surprise that we were introduced to this film by our old next door neighbours, the Glen Dinnings. They love this film, so, quite rightly. So have a drink uh, for you uh, guys out there. <laughs> the name game. The name game. Uh, and our other friends, uh, the Feenies as well. And yeah, the, the, the Glen Dinnings were huge fans of this film. I remember uh, John Glendening had a uh, an alien poster. So it was a poster that you hung on your door that looked like the alien had smashed through the door. And I remember being, yeah... Uh, at a sleepover and being traumatized and not being able to sleep. And, and you saw that before you had even seen the film. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I remember being given the choice of, oh, what should we watch, Terminator or Aliens? And I was always like, let's watch Terminator, let's watch Terminator. So yeah, I didn't actually get into it and I didn't get to appreciate it probably until my sort of, which sounds ridiculous, uh, my sort of mid-teens. Yes, it's 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 weird how you, you kind of have to get, get past it. I mean, very similar for me. So obviously I was only seven or eight when this came out at the cinema. But once again, was, you know, sort of press ganged into watching this with the guys. And yeah, as soon as I, I finally actually got around, because I was too scared, you know, I wouldn't watch mm. it or I would just, I would make an excuse. Uh, did I leave yeah. the iron on uh, to get, you know, to, to do something else? Um, but when I actually did get around to watching it, I, I guess I was probably about 12 or 13 or maybe 14 like yourself, like young teenager. I very I fell in love with it very quickly. Once you get over that initial sort of the horror idea of the alien mm. popping out of the chest... The rest is, is just amazing action. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, that's, I guess, what uh, the BBFC classification is all about. It's a guidance system. It's a guidance system. <laughs> and to ignore it at your own peril, it might scar you for life. Yeah. I mean, it might even put you off horror films for life. <laughs> but, yeah, I think the, you know, this is no surprise to, to our listeners, but you and I are both big James Cameron fans. Um, he's made some of the greatest films ever made. We spent a lot of time uh, sharing our love for, for Terminator 2. And highest grossing films ever made. The guy has a talent. He takes his time. He's been pushing cinema forward. He knows how to make a good sequel as well. As yeah. you know, we've, we've talked about Terminator 2, but this is the first sequel he did. I think this is his, technically this is his third film. Yeah. And this film was voted the best sequel of all time. So ahead of Godfather Part 2, ahead of Empire Strikes Back, and indeed Terminator 2. Take yeah. that, disbelievers. <laughs> so, George, we, as we normally do, um, before we'll go into, you know, what we love about this film, best bits, uh, bad impressions, and obviously our usual features. George, how do we, how do we get this film? What was the, uh, what was going on in the industry? How did James Cameron get involved? Well, um, interestingly, and especially in this day and age where, you know, as, as you were saying, it seems like every, uh, Hollywood film that comes out has like a three film plan. Franchise, it, baby. Uh, yeah. There's always a, some sort of trilogy planned, but... George, uh, it's not about making money. It's about telling a story. Telling a story over a multiverse. Yeah. But even though the first Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien in 1979, was a, a big success, Fox didn't consider a sequel because it was actually quite an expensive film to make for what is technically a, a horror film set in space. You know, it's an yeah. expensive horror film, and horror films by by standard are cheap to make, but then they make a huge amount of profit because they're good, you know, crowd pleasers. Yeah. 
So it wasn't until 1983 that James Cameron had sort of created a bit of buzz around Hollywood with his uh, Terminator script. And he was uh, prepping to do Terminator when he uh, met one of the producers of Alien, uh, David Geiler. So Terminator hadn't been made? No. So this was, yeah, this was in the sort of pre-production. He was getting ready to do Terminator. Mm-hmm. Met the guys from Fox and they said, they were talking about random ideas and they were like, oh, have you got any ideas for what was then called Alien 2? Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh yeah, let me come back. So he wrote a, a treatment and they... They were like, uh, wow. Yeah, they, <laughs> shut, shut up and take my money. <laughs> yeah, so they commissioned him just to, on first basis just to write the screenplay. And Cameron got this good news the same day he uh, landed the screenwriting duties for Rambo First Blood Part 2. I did not know that. <laughs> so Cameron writes the script two months before he uh, leaves to go and direct uh, The Terminator. And then following the success of Terminator, they offer him not just the screenwriting duties, but to direct and produce with his wife, Gail Ann Hurd, who also produced uh, Terminator. All right, so proven that he can deliver and then gets the big gig. Real gigs. And he can deliver on a budget as well. I think that's the important thing. That's so ironic considering he's known for like low budget, low budget, and he's the highest grossing director of all time. Yeah, and he's done some of the most expensive films of all time since. Yeah, so it is about money and telling a story. You know, we probably touched on this in the Terminator 2 episode, but yeah, Cameron's roots are from sort of low budget Roger Corman, sort of almost like exploitation films um, where everything was done on a shoestring budget. Everything was done with some clever use of like models and sets. And a lot of those techniques were employed in this film as well. But the interesting thing was, so this was filmed in, in, in England at Pinewood, home of Bond and Star Wars and God knows what else. Then, yeah, and uh, obviously the first Alien was uh, filmed there by Sir Ridley Scott. At this time, I think just due to uh, release schedules, the Terminator hadn't come out in the UK. So, where, where are we in time? So, Alien came out in seventy nine. Yes, or, yeah, and so they started talking about this. So, we're talking early eighties. But when he started filming yeah. uh, over at Pinewood, it would have been say eighty five. Yeah, but eighty four, eighty five. Because uh, it came out, yeah, 86. Um, but a lot of the UK crew uh, hadn't seen the Terminator, so they didn't know who Cameron was. They just thought he was some random, shouty Canadian guy. <laughs> what have you done for us lately? <laughs> exactly. And they were uh, the crew were openly hostile to Cameron and uh, Gail Ann Hurd. They didn't take Gail Ann Hurd seriously because, they, because she was James Cameron's wife. But they were like, oh, you're just... The That's the only reason she's there, is yeah. what they claimed. Uh, even though she is a very talented producer. There was also um, arguments over, I think Cameron wasn't used to uh, the British way of working, so they had like regular tea breaks, they had a tea lady, and you know, Cameron... Want some tea, dear? No, I don't want some fucking tea! Get the fucking tea out of here! <laughs> so yeah, you know, Cameron apparently is a very uh, intense person to work with, he's very, me- very methodical, he really sort of gets the most out of his cast and crew, you know, some of the... Uh, a lot of films he's worked on have been very intense uh, filming things, so like The Abyss, like Titanic. But as we said, he, the man gets results. Yeah. So I think he eventually managed to to win over uh, the crew eventually. And because it, they were filming in in England, they made the sort of, so again, probably cost saving to cast a lot of American actors living in London at the time. 
Um, Once again, budget concerns. Smart move, though. Yeah, and that includes the the actress uh, Carrie Henn, who plays Newt, who was an American girl living in London, but that's why her accent's a bit weird. It's a, sometimes it's American, sometimes yeah. it's a little bit English. Yeah, yeah, I picked up on that. Sigourney Weaver was, you know, uh, a key part of of the sequel. And did she take much convincing? Yes, she did. She especially, apparently, she's quite anti-gun, and she talks about this in the behind the scenes. But so I think Cameron had to do a lot of convincing about the maternal aspect of the story and the fact that it's a cathartic reaction for Ripley. She's getting closure. She's going back. You know, she's she's effectively got PTSD from the first film. Sigourney, it's called gunishment. <laughs> and if you want to work with me, I like guns a lot. And yeah, he must have done a very good job to convince someone very anti-gun to be running around with a flamethrower taped to a, a plasma rifle <laughs> and rocket launcher. So yeah, she was uh, key to getting on board. And I think that's the the interesting thing about the, the Alien franchise. It's whilst it's about the alien, it's also equally a Ripley story. And I think for that one reason, that's why the recent Ridley Scott prequels don't really work as well because you're not invested in the There's, human Where's characters. the history? Where's that? And also, where's that dynamic, that relationship of Ripley's history mm. with the alien? I know how they think. Yeah. I know how they act. And um, Cameron did, obviously, a similar trick with, with Terminator 2 in terms of evolving the character of, you know, that sort of frightened damsel in distress into a hardened... Badass. Yeah, fighter. <laughs> and, and made that transition believable. They, they sort of wrong foots you because it's all about the, that false sense of security of having all these Marines, the, the colonial Marines. So all the Marines, uh, the guys playing the Marines went through two weeks of SAS training before filming. But Cameron made a point of Sigourney Weaver, Paul Reiser and the guy who plays the... Uh, APOC. No, Gorman. Oh, Gorman. Um, they didn't go for the training because he wanted to create that divide. Them and us. Yes. Them and us mentality. I like it. But he also had the... He encouraged the actors to personalize all their armor so just like obviously that he's been quite open about it being vietnam and space and totally that, under 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 underarmed but uh, over, well that's it you know a outgun a, not a, outgun but underarmed so well, that's it, a high-tech overarmed side against a guerrilla warfare hiding in the shadows sort yeah ex of thing. Ex exactly so um yeah, the crew were encouraged to personalize their armor with slogans, sayings, drawings, things like that. And for added realism, the the first scene where we meet the Marines, where they're all sort of introduced and bantering around, was actually one of the last scenes that they filmed to because they'd been you know together for so long. They had they they'd established that chemistry exactly. Contrary to popular belief, Jeanette Goldstein, who plays uh, Vasquez, is not actually Hispanic. She is a Jewish American woman living in London at the time. So makeup was used to make her skin appear darker. She dyed her hair and also wore brown contact lenses. And she, you'll also remember her being the quaint old Irish lady from Titanic as well. But she's seriously ripped in this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's uh, very believable. You know, you wouldn't mess. <laughs> Well, I think that's it. This, uh, you know, this film has so many memorable characters. Um, you know, the, the Marines do feel like a, a proper set team. One of the last sort of, uh, things that I suppose we can talk about now. So is the, in terms of the gun design. So Vasquez and Drake's smart guns. So the guns that are mounted on their sides. Yeah. Um, were adapted from, 
Um, well, they're, heli they're helicopter gun, aren't they? No, no. Uh, they were machine guns adapted with m motorbike parts mounted to Steadicam gear. So the stuff that people use for like running around with cameras. Yeah, because you can see that. And there's, I, d I picked up this time watching it that when... Also, trivia question, which you might not be able to answer now, but Vasquez is... Is it Riggs? Vasquez is the other half, the other guy with the big Drake. gun? Is he in The Departed? Yes. <laughs> okay, uh, I know. Yeah, so, so he that is. is a... So he is a character actor. He's. I think he's actually originally Irish. Yeah. Um, but that's why he's obviously in the Departed. <laughs> Departed. Um, I don't know the actor's name off the top of my head. But in that scene when they're both practicing with their guns and they're using the bicycle yes. parts to rotate, did you notice that he's got it attached to his hip because it's obviously a heavy piece of machinery? And when she's doing it, hers is actually on the table. No, I did not notice. So it makes me think that the rig was actually much... Because when you see her with the gun, it looks ridiculously heavy. And so there's a clever bit of camera work going mm. on in that the first time you see her with the gun, she's holding a real, like, a replica gun made out of metal. But I think in the other scenes, when she's actually walking with it attached to her hip, it's it's lighter. It's not a real gun. Okay. Uh, I... It's amazing what you pick up the second it, time, it, buddy. It, it may, may be the case. I may have completely fabricated that out of nothing, so... I really do enjoy this, and, and you and I talked about this. I think we are both of that same mindset. Maybe it is, you know, we have more of a, a preference for action films, and I think... If anyone gave us the choice of alien over aliens, we would always pick aliens. Because oh yeah, I mean, I get it's, the whole. It's, it's more, it's more. Whilst, and I think that's what we want to talk about. Uh, get out the way is that alien, we respect alien in alien everything. Is 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 a masterpiece. It's in, an intellectual sci-fi film, like Blade Runner. Like Blade Runner, um, it is a a very important science fiction film. It's a great mix of sci-fi and horror, but suspense, terror, yeah, and you know it's it's done a huge amount for the sci-fi genre. And like Terminator and Terminator Two, you couldn't have you you can't really appreciate Aliens without appreciating Alien. But for me, um, a bit much like Terminator Two, that I always seem to I'm drawn to t Aliens because it's more of an adventure well it's funny how the the industry's gone full circle because we grew up us analog generation we grew up in the 80s and 90s watching films being made and then being improved so we've seen it with empire strikes back with aliens with terminator 2 and now we live in a world where it's all about they're, they're thinking about the franchise they're, they're they're not saying let's have a go and if it's successful let's yeah. make a sequel it's What's We're the, starting what's the big plan, and we've seen films tank for that reason. We've seen films. What, what was it? The Golden Compass, because we read all the books. The didn't Golden we? Compass. The, There's been the, films that have the, the Dark Universe with Tom Cruise's Mummy film. Yeah, because that's died a death. Mm. Uh, yeah, so we it was a different it was a different time, but great sequels. So that I mean that's, well, that, that's I think that's the telling thing that the fact that the studio sat on it for five years, saying, "Oh, actually, no, it's." It's too expensive to, is you know, we don't think a sequel is going to be profitable. But it's only until James Cameron comes up with an idea and is like, well, actually, I think I can do something really interesting with it. They're like, okay. 
and it's getting Sigourney Weaver back on board because, you know, it is a crazy concept to say, well, let's, we don't need Ripley. Let's make, uh, you know, the aliens the star, a bit like what you've done with the Predator films. If you think about the Predator, you've kept the Predator as the, the constant, but it's been different characters every time. They could have easily done that with, with Alien, but the interesting thing was that Cameron took a very interesting aspect, and that was the reason why Sigourney Weaver came back, because it was an, a continuation of her story, and her character was changing. Well, I mean, that's one place I would start, because it's in those first scenes, and I, I think we both would agree with this, that there's much more set up on the director's cut than there was on the original. So you get the, the I remember the bad dream with the alien, she, the first thing. So no, just, just to follow on from the point you're making about what an amazing setup the camera says, it's 57 years later. Yeah. I mean, that is a great premise because then you've got the same character can build an entirely new universe with new weapons and the aliens have been given time to do whatever they're going to be doing. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it still keeps what the interesting thing that Ridley Scott did was he, like George Lucas, he made, instead of it, the, the future being all bright and shiny and everyone in oh, slick. It was rugged and, and worn. Slick, and yeah, and dirty and people were talking. And that was the thing that, that resonated with Alien. People were talking about when they were going to get paid and stuff like that. It was believable. It was workers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like, I've been working this rig and, and, yeah. and, and, and that's we've what, seen some crazy shit. So. And, and, that, and that's what's been continued into this, that it's, even though it's still far future, it's still relatable. They're, they're still using, in terms of, they're still using bullets and guns. And the thing, one of the things I love is the, Carter Burke, the man that works for the company, it's the far future. Fashion has evolved so far, we just wear our collars up. Yeah. <laughs> and you laugh, but it's called but, the Mandarin Collar, George, and it's coming back. No, but, it's coming back in a big way. Do you need to spend money on all these? You know, if you look at the cast, they're wearing gilets and leather jackets. It's very much 1980s fashion. Are you trying to say that James Cameron doesn't have good fashion sense? Are you not... Have, have you, you not, seen his shirts? Have you not got <laughs> over that, yeah, that Terminator plugging video well, where he's wearing that amazing shirt? I have watched uh, a lot of interviews with James Cameron in preparation for this podcast and the man has terrible choices in I think his shirt just, sense i think he's just fucking with you I, th I think he's like look i mean the man's like i've won you know 12 oscars i've made several billion dollars fuck you i'm gonna wear what i want i think it is that i think he knows that whenever he's on film the one thing he can control is what he wears do you know what i mean he can't yeah. control the when he's being interviewed Okay, so how can I actually take control of this? How can I take the attention? How to make it a James Cameron, Cameron interview? I'm going to mm. wear a shirt that diverts the attention. But the important thing is that you don't focus on the things about the fashion because it is about the story. It's about the action. It's about the drama. It's about the horror. It's about the tension. And when all that fashion and company and spaceships are being thrown at you, you're like. Where are the aliens? No, but uh, where but, are the aliens? But, but it also makes it more relatable. The fact that yeah, it's it's that whole corporate bickering and but on this the the whole military camaraderie. You know, there's it's all very real and relatable. But yes, you're right. We're we're getting a bit carried away because we haven't even got into. Well, we want to give this film the proper justice. But I mean, you've covered off the majority of the background to this film, how it came to be, 
we said that we're not going to talk about what Ridley Scott thinks of this film because he doesn't think much of this film. And I think part of that is a competitiveness, which I respect. It's a shame because I think, just want to put this in there, I think what Alien Covenant was really missing was maybe having Cameron involved in some way. Yeah, because I think there was... This is just a slight divergent into are, that recent yeah, film. You know, I think Cameron was talking about a potential Alien 5 at some point before... But that was with Blanc. We talked to... No, 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 no. This not was with Blomkamp. No, this was before before Prometheus and all of that. But, but Neil Blomkamp was talking about doing a sequel to Aliens. Yes. Which was to follow this which film was, that which, we're Yes, about. which was, was going to uh, completely ignore all the, the sequels. But that would have been ama- that would be amazing to have Blomkamp doing it with his look and feel and Cameron somehow involved. Anyway, this is, that's wish fulfillment. Mm. Shall we dive into the film? Yes. So, just a a note to our listeners: we are going to be talking about the the director's cut or the special edition version of this. So, which is not the version we grew up on, but is the one that we've watched most recently and, a lot, and the the version we we, we know the best. So, um, it does have a bit like the Terminator Two uh, director's cut. It does have around. 17 minutes of extra scenes and we're going to They do make a difference. Yes, they do. Um, so they are mainly at the start. There's, there's a lot more at the start that isn't in the original version. Um, we're just going to plow into it now. Yeah, I mean, for me, watching this film, obviously you've got the music... You've got the fact they set it up putting it 57 years in the future. You've got all of the great things. There's a space station and you've got these very harsh things of like, she's waking up into a harsh reality. Like everything that she believed before, you know, she finds out about her daughter. She finds out about the company. She's got so many questions and it's very much fish out of water. But the the thing I, I love that like within opening seconds, it is clearly a James Cameron film. So Ripley's escape pod or ship gets picked up. They send in the drone. It, you know, cuts open That's the door. That's so futuristic looking. It, it cuts open the door. It's scanning. You've got blue smoke. You've got tech hardware. You've got the sound effects. Mm-hmm. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's James Cameron through and through. It's, it's attention his, to detail. It's attention to detail. It's his love of hardware. It's the visuals. Yeah. It, and, and as you say, his love of hardware. Because yeah. it, we talked about this a lot in Terminator 2 with the use of smoke, ultraviolet Ma- light. Machines. And, it's, you know, he's a very technical person. And I think machines could be a drinking game word for this because <laughs> I'm, I'm going I'm to be saying machine a lot. So when you hear machine, mm. and if you're drinking, get, get your drink on. Yeah. The other thing about this, thing, this film from the very off is the amazing soundtrack from James Horner. I may as well get out the way now, but I went sort George, of... George, you should have covered music in the production chat. What's going on? <laughs> You're losing your edge. I actually got it written down, James Horner music. Why do I remember that name? He's done some other... Yeah, well, James Horner stuff. has done some some brilliant soundtracks. Um, through, like, for many films, he's... Hasn't he done a Bond film at some stage? Or he's done... No, oh, I'm getting confused with... Um... No, you, though, he hasn't done Bond film, but he's, he's done a lot of... Uh, he did Braveheart... Um, he worked with Cameron years later. Apparently, they fell out over this score because Cameron forced him to turn it around very quickly. But they worked together on Titanic. 
So they've done a lot of ba 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 ba. I think he did some of the Star Trek. I think he did Wrath of Khan soundtrack. That's a good soundtrack. Great, good, great soundtrack. So yeah, it's, it's a cracking score. I went and actually saw this a live performance at the Royal Albert Hall a couple of years ago with uh, one of our good friends, George Feeney, and it was phenomenal. I mean, I think... But you... what do you do when the music's happening? I don't get these things. So do you just so imagine it's... the film? No, no. Or so... you're watching the film? So it's an isolated score. So you're watching the film projected on a screen in the Albert Hall, but there's a live orchestra ah, playing right. the entire soundtrack. That would be amazing. No, I just thought that you guys went into an no, operatic no, no, room no. and just listened to the music and go, ah, this, I, this is this scene and this is <laughs> this. <laughs> yeah, no. No, you, you actually watched the... That sounds the, like a lot of brain work. Yeah. yeah, it was, yeah, it was absolutely... I mean, they've done loads at the Albert Hall. They've done uh, a lot of the Spielberg stuff. So they've done Jurassic Park, uh, Indiana Jones. They've, I think E.T. They did Casino Royale, which I was a bit annoyed that I um, uh, didn't get to see. But yeah, Aliens was phenomenal. And it was so great watching it with hundreds, if not, you know, probably over a thousand people watching. And George Feeney. So. And George Feeney. An amazing score. It's so sinister and brooding and... and and, but, and, and, and operatic when it needs to be and bombastic but yeah now as you say it's um it's a great opening because you've got that dream sequence but is it a dream it's a is very it really? clever it's a clever dream sequence because stuff has actually happened stuff has happened and you're introduced to characters so you're introduced to paul riser's character the slimy company man carter burke and the stuff that's ha- ha- and the nurse and yeah you've it's been, not explained again after the well, dream well that's it it's 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 that ex you're getting exposition in the dream <laughs> which of, you've been still applies after the dream ripley you've been asleep for 57 years yeah and oh here's your cat and then the cat goes nuts mm-hmm. um ripley been asleep for 50 years i thought it was 57 or well, maybe i dreamt that <laughs> <laughs> and there's part of me that thinks imagine if they actually had, that was the opening, and they killed her off at the start. George, <laughs> save it for suspicious spin-offs. No, but that was, it was like, <laughs> it's, it's almost like if they did that in a cheap horror film, uh, we could only afford Sigourney Weaver for, for 10, ten minutes. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about Carter Burke. Yeah. <laughs> that could work. That, that could, maybe So later. we've got great model work from the off, because you've got the whole, um, I don't know, the, I just watching it maybe this is the director's cut special edition but i got watching this there's some impressive model work with the space station that i'm not sure yeah no it's it, the if uh, i remember uh, the original uh, it was like you saw her in the room and you got the feeling that she was on a space station but i can't remember outer shots of the space station i think those i, I think you probably did get some of those shots but i think a lot of the stuff there's they more co- i think he's added like with terminator 2 he's just added a few other extra yeah. shots no, I, I definitely get shades of. Um, it's very reminiscent of two thousand and one. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You the know, model work. No, yeah. but but also uh, it's With not the music. It's not just the model work and the music, but the bits uh, that they add in. And I'm pretty sure this is a special edition scene or director's cut scene where she's being um, interrogated by the board yeah. in the boardroom. That is very two thousand and one. Everyone's like in terms of the set design, taking close space, smoking. Yeah, yeah, everyone's smoking. It's all very corporate but in space and i think that's it there's a lot of stuff that they build out um that yeah you could say to make it like uh to trim down the the script you're like oh well that's not to the main story that's not overly essential i know but that that boardroom scene was in the original 
You sure? Yeah, yeah, because that's when she finds out that they've the, had colonists oh, on right. there for years. Oh, right. So the bit that they don't feature is, meanwhile, on LV-426... Look, look, an alien spaceship. Ah, my face. <laughs> <laughs> hey, kids, daddy's got a great new job. We're going to live on El a new planet. It's going to be really exciting. Sunshine and dreams it's, and ice cream. Oh, no, sorry. It's a barren planet and we can't sharp breathe. sharp rocks, nuclear reactors and constant rain. <laughs> um, so what would you say is 101 in parenting on this planet? Should we just leave both the kids in, 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 in the dune buggy thing? Yeah. Whilst Daddy goes to explore the the weird alien spaceship, first contact with alien. I think that sorry, that's a point I wanted to bring up, and I suppose it's a good time. Is that because you've you got your it, hand up? I've actually got my hand up, as, looking for George's attention and permission to speak, even permission though I'm already granted. even though I'm already speaking. Um, yeah, the and it's referred to by some of the Marines is that nobody's ever encountered an alien in this universe because the Marines point at Ripley and say. Yeah, she thinks she's seen an alien. And these Marines have seen everything. No. But they haven't. But, there's been no encounters but, with aliens. No, no, there has, because there's some interesting parallels. God damn it. To another podcast, one of our first podcasts. There's, was I on it? There's references to Starship Troopers, the book, because obviously this was made 10 years before the film. But there's there's terms, and Cameron has has listed it that the book was a big influence on him growing up. What Starship Troopers? The the book Starship Troopers. But there's terms the drop, you know, in terms of the drop ship. And Hudson says, "Sir, is this another bug hunt?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I picked up on that. So, and as well as the the so power probably lifted out of Starship the, Troopers. The power loader in the Starship Troopers novel, they have these exosuits, powered yeah, which, exosuits, yeah. which again is something that's been. Now I remember you talking about that. Carried that was over our second episode that we will. Probably I was a much younger man. We were both younger men. Nothing's going to go possibly wrong on LV2's 426. Oh, wrong? my face! <laughs> <laughs> I've got an alien on my face. Your dad's dead. But, Fast forward. But interestingly, no, the, uh, this is definitely, I know this is definitely a director's cut scene because it's very reminiscent of Terminator 2, but it's the, oh, yeah, you know, I, I asked the company about that and you know what they said to me? Don't, Don't ask. ask. Yeah. And that is dialogue lifted, that is yeah. lifted from, well, reused, repurposed in... Is that another drinking thing? Whenever we mention Terminator 2, you've got to drink. Well, <laughs> all, all I want to say is Wayland Yutani building better worlds by being really evil. <laughs> yes. So Carter convinces Ripley to go back. Some more really nice economic exposition in terms of we've lost contact with the colony you're the only person, you're the person that knows it the best, but you'll be fully supported by these Marines. They, they know what you want to do. They, you'll be in no danger whatsoever. It is, I noticed this watching it second time round. It was like your flight status has been revoked. Two minutes later, Ripley, you do this mission, you, you back as a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I've spoken with the company. Yeah. And despite them saying you're not mentally fit... <laughs> You can have your license back. But we, but so there is, because I, there is this uh, time gap. So she then, we're, 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 they we're don't, told, they don't that's really not make the original. It, but they, they don't, don't make what, what that time gap is. They don't make it apparent. Do well, they? it's weeks or months. Because in, I, I think, the, he, in the corporate meeting, they say, 
we've had colonists there for months. And there's been no, 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 the thing is they've had, sorry to everyone else if it sounds like we don't know what we're talking about, but in, we are talking about the discrepancies between the original and the director's mm. cut. So in the original, it is basically, they've been there for months, there's never been a problem, and she tells them about where the aliens were, and Carter, uh, sorry, Burke, then tells the bad parents to go and check it out. And in the meantime, she's working in the loading docks, and the parents go to check it out, the parents discover the aliens, the aliens get yeah. into LV-46, but we and fucking convert everybody but, into but, aliens. But we don't know what that length of time no, is. No, but we're assuming it's weeks or months, because yeah. they have to travel there, and they all go into hypersleep, and I don't think you'd go into hypersleep if unless, it's a short journey. Unless it, if it, well, it's like an eight-hour transfer, but I, I, I'm not willing to do more than four hours without a hypersleep these uh, days. <laughs> I'm dead tired. So, but, but the, that, the point to make is it, that is not made... When you watch the original cut... There's probably so many people listening to this who just don't care, but I'm going to continue. When we'll, you, we'll edit it out. When you watch the original, like when she's playing around with the autoloader, it's like, I'm actually just very good with machines. I used to be a pilot, and I can work this without any sort of backstory. In the director's cut, they explain that she's been working in the docks. That's the only job she can The only get. job that she's trained to do, and that's how she can work the autoloader. So once again, like Terminator 2, the extra bits that he cut out actually do were mm. essential but were cut out for economic time and the other thing that they they build up in the, the director's cut is that she's suffering from ptsd she is having nightmares and as cameron says in uh, in the behind the scenes stuff it's a cathartic thing for ripley that's why because she's given that chance of, of and she says to to burke we're going to kill it. Yeah, we're, we're killing it, aren't we? We're not going back to study them. Absolutely, Ripley. Absolutely. <laughs> I am a very stable genius. I can be trusted. I would never lie to you. So let's get to the good shit. We're, we're on the Sulaco, so... What a ship. What a ship. It's a floating gun in space. <laughs> it does look like a revolver. Uh, it's almost like James Cameron has a hard-on for guns. <laughs> <laughs> Don't read too much into that, but because we're introduced to the Marines. But no, but there is a link. I've never really picked up on this, and apparently this is an additional shot where when everyone's in a hypersleep, there's like the camera pans around the ship, and it's like, guns, nukes. You know what? This is going to go well. All I'm thinking, George, when you say that is Hot Shots Part of War. It's <laughs> fantastic. It's like, what could... <laughs> you saw the first one where they had, like, you know, a flamethrower and a power wrench. We've got nukes. <laughs> yeah, what could possibly go wrong? Um, but 80s I, corporate mentality in nukes. It's what the world needs right now. Right now. But, yeah, I... Um, for me, this is one of my favourite parts of the film. It's... It's all the banter of the of the you know you get to meet all the marines and, and these I, are the scenes you were talking about that they actually filmed last when they built bonds together. Yeah, yeah, but I love um, even though he like you think he's gonna again it's that sort of twist they do in aliens of an alien of you don't know who's gonna last, but like I love uh, a pwn, you know the he's not the the chief but he's like the marine sergeant you know the he's guy the captain he's the, the captain yeah, so he's not the lieutenant he's, he's the captain yeah he's like another glorious day in the, the core. core everything he yeah. says everything he says it's like you want more of him and he dies honorably but he's he's chewing that cigar yeah oh properly, properly chewing. chewing that cigar secure that shit hudson yeah <laughs> it's like every it's what you imagine a marine drill what, sergeant to sound what, like it reminded me I of think, starship troopers 
I think out of all the cast, he actually did time in Nam. Yeah, he probably did. No, no, he did. Oh, he, right, okay. Because uh, behind the scenes, like, he, there's a massive, like, uh, behind the scenes documentary that you can find on YouTube. And he's told him, like, I've handled guns and I know when you like. And he's, this, he's had, like, this guy's had an amazing career. He even had, like, a top 10 or top 20 disco song in the UK charts. We'll, we'll, we'll chuck it in at the end. But, uh, no, 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 let's chuck it in now. <laughs> but this that was amazing. But this guy has, uh, has led a life. Um, but yeah, he was actually in Nam and he knows all about handling guns and he said he felt a bit annoyed about how... Like, unrealistic and plasticky they were well, no no about how like like uh, how relaxed people were with having their like fingers on the trigger and stuff and he's yeah. just like goes i will break your finger off <laughs> um no but everything he says is iconic and quotable i love him and but no he's, he's yeah he's brilliant and you get you, you do get that sense so quickly and again you know we always banner on the, about this but it is that an economic exposition you you get to know these characters you get to know you know, Bishop, Hicks, Vasquez, Poe and Hudson, they've all got these character quirks, but they are individual characters. But that's why I love that drop scene, because you've got Bill Paxton, as we'll see later on in this film, loses his shit, literally. But at the beginning, he's like, don't, he's, he's saying to them, don't worry, we've got, we've got nukes, we've got these plasma rifles, we've got this, we've seen the heaviest shit in the world, and... And there's other guys like, how many drops have you done? And he's like, who, Gorman, how many, how many simulated? And it's like, how many drops have you done? 37 simulated. How many real ones? This is my second. And Hicks, because I said this to George earlier, how do you demonstrate that you are the biggest badass on the team during a drop? He's asleep. But he's, it's not a showy role with Hicks. It's not an overly macho role, but you've got a great contrast of, yeah, Hudson, who is so, Say what you see, <laughs> yeah. uh, the mouthpiece of it. But you've got the whole the knife trick. That is such an iconic scene in this film. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask out hypothetically how many of our listeners have tried that growing up. I know and we, have the scars to prove and it. I've got the scars <laughs> to prove it. I'm pretty sure our friends. I'm pretty sure I remember Jay Feeney trying it yeah, at some doing, point. Yeah. But no, no, he would just practice. Just, just practice. He'd practice on his own hand and none of us would ever agree <laughs> to having him like do it with his hand over ours. Well, like, it's in it's the fine, film. I've done loads of practice. But you're absolutely right on how there is this, um, not apprehension, but it's like, who's going to survive? Because you all know there's a lot of collateral. You know, when you watch a film, you're like, hmm, mm. is it going to be like last man standing? Is it just going to be Ripley? Or are there going to be a few of them? And he plays with that. You know, he plays with it that they are badasses, that they've seen some action, that they're a tight unit, that they're not scared of anything. What's, they've got, what's the worst that could happen? What could possibly go wrong? So we've got that. But then, you know, and this is where it gets skeptical. And this, is, this brings it back to my point about whether or not maybe they've been on a bug hunt, but they haven't actually really encountered anything serious because when Ripley is telling it how it is, when she's giving yeah. the this it's yeah, so it's, it's, got, it's blood is corrosive yeah. acid and 
it impregnates you and then it becomes you and it cannot sorry it's starting to sound like it cannot be reasoned with it does not sleep it um but when she's doing that they're all looking at her skeptically they're like yeah whatever who's, who's the crazy cat lady yeah yeah exactly they're looking at her like she's nuts but then we get introduced to newt and going back to your PTSD. Whoa, 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 what have I whoa, skipped? whoa. You have missed a very key part of the story. And it's what I am calling Chekhov's power loader. So there is a very famous practice in script writing and story writing called Chekhov's gun. So it's basically like foreshadowing. So if you see, if a, if somebody turns up in a play, a film, a story with a gun, chances are that gun's going to be fired. Oh, what, this thing? This thing yeah. that I can operate? I'm, I'm really good at operating this massive machinery. Oh, that's really... Well, that's it. It is, it is kind of like that. It's like... Show us what you're good at, Ripley. <laughs> well, I can operate this highly, highly powerful robot that could do some... Okay, that's, that's really cool. Anyway, let's go on to the mission. Yeah. So, yeah, Chekhov's power loader. So then we're introduced to new. There's definite some PTSD. There's definitely, I think they're working through their grief. They're coping with grief no, together. She's lost her parents and Ripley's lost a daughter. And that is, the, is why the relation is why Newt means so much to Ripley, because I think it's important to touch on that because it becomes a major plot device throughout the, I mean, that's why she goes back. Yes. It's why she uh, goes to kill the alien And queen. it's a great balance between the macho bravado of the Marines mm-hmm. with the maternal... There's obviously the parallels with the maternal of Ripley versus the maternal of the Queen. But the one thing that we haven't touched on in the whole landing is the amount of amazing... Uh, model work. Yeah, miniatures, model work, special effects that if you look at the behind the scenes, like how much of... LV426 they built as miniature and that's you know in a pre-CGI uh, time you know the it's a similar uh, thing with Blade Runner that like the attention to detail that this stuff couldn't be created in computers it was hand built it was illuminated and a lot of the money went into that but, but it's, it's why Star Wars has recently gone back to using some prosthetics to using some yeah, models it's tangible. because well, it's not just that, but like, why spend? Because I mean, Marvel is like the CGI you see in Marvel films is top of the range, and it requires massive servers, and it's like very, very, very expensive. And the reason I'm explaining like that way is that you can throw so much money behind CGI today, and a model could actually, with a bit of smoke and Jim Cameron magic, looks better, looks ten times better. So I think it was just as worthwhile mm. an endeavor to build it, but. To touch on what you were saying before about, you know, this landing, because well, I I get the um, the correlation with the Vietnam War, but for me it's never as present as it is as when they land the ship, then they're in the tank, and it's like an operation. It's like go 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 yeah, yeah. go go, and it's um, it's raining and yeah, and yeah. it's like Hudson run a bypass, and then they're in. Yeah, I don't know. For me, that whole point with them having the shoulder-mounted cameras with the heads-up displays, with the pulse. Was that the first time in film that's been seen? And it's been endlessly copied ever since. Like, I remember it being in... The Rock. Uh, the Rock, Jurassic World, the, that future tech of everyone's going to be linked in, everyone's going to have... And it, it adds that whole disorientation, that tension of what are they seeing when the, you know, you're losing well, the, the feeds. Fact that we've seen that we're, we're then to see it again in um, 
very reminiscent the scenes in this of you know when they've obviously we're i'm skipping ahead a little bit here but when they're using the trackers where are they they're right on yeah. top of you predator 2 where are they give me yeah. a grid reference and in predator 2 they've got um they've got the heart monitors and they've got the cameras yeah. and they're tracking them so in terms of the heartbeats everyone's got all the different yeah the, the sort of the multi-screen display it's yeah. it feels very modern but at the same time retro retro yeah yeah so the the other thing we talked about in terms of the tech but it's the motion trackers and i think that's oh, that's such an iconic sound yeah, well, we, we've talked about that in terms of it, it, it and throughout the whole film pretty much from as soon as they're introduced right up until the end of the film like until they leave the planet you've got that that constant sound it's like effect. a drip of water it's like a drip yeah. no but it's like a drip of water because it's that fuzzy blip on a microphone very you could almost say retro sounding now but then sounded mm. ultra futuristic and and again like we've talked about with the uh, the pov cameras and stuff it's it's been borrowed and ref riffed on and stuff like predator and probably countless other horror films since then we haven't really talked about um, Bishop. Obviously, we've talked about the knife, the five the finger fillet, the, the the knife trick. But um, the thing I like about this, and they don't dwell on it too much. But obviously, the in the in the first Alien, you had bad Google, <laughs> the but, bad AI, bad bad AI. You had Ash, played by Ian Holm, and in this, it's it's great that the, you have Ripley's complete distrust. Of, as a result of a synth of a synthetic or an android i the, prefer the term artificial human yeah <laughs> but i love the way that they they play with that can he be trusted is is he going to tell is he working for the company's best interest you're sexy but i don't trust you <laughs> <laughs> no but that's it because it's the brilliant uh lance henriksen because he's so fucking weird you just don't know if he's which way he's gonna go it's like I have been programmed to protect. But then you see him studying the face hugger like, oh, yes, hello, pretty. It's an intriguing design. No, I like him, and I like the fact that he's subtle, that he's cool, and and it's a great flip of the character from being completely unreliable to being the most reliable. And when he's piloting the plane and doing when, all When the... would Cameron do something like that, like flip your conventions of an, of an evil robot... Or a pathetic female into a harder, a badass. I can't see this being repeated, no. But no, I, I, I do like Bishop, and I think everyone does by the end of the film, even when he's flailing about in what can only be described <laughs> as a synthetic bowl of android pasta. <laughs> Apparently they achieved that by mixing yogurt and milk together. But then they left it under studio lights. So Lance Henriksen, because he was supposed to like spit it out when he was being cut in half, got food poisoning because he'd be made basically giving this milk has gone warm. <laughs> <laughs> milk was a bad choice. This wasn't in my contract. <laughs> so, but this is first contact we're talking about. They're getting into so it's an atmospheric processor and the processor processor processes and so the aliens have decided to hold up right next to it because they know that should there be an onslaught of marines and it's nice and warm yeah they're not they, they're not going to be able to use 
a live fire exercise. So what are we supposed to use? Harsh language? Yeah, so they all hand in but their that magazines. Is, that is a great twist. It's like, you've got all these guns. And they're useless. But you can't use them. Thankfully, we've Hicks, got a flame Hicks has Michael Beans kept the same sawn-off shotgun from Terminator. So yeah, we need. Are we? Is now the, <laughs> we're in the far future, but you've still got your sawn-off shotgun. So we've got, this is first contact, and it's the bit that I find this was a, so the, the this the is bits the, I this find is scary. The, yeah, the the most scary bit of the film. The bits I find scary. I used to as a seven-year-old, and and to be honest, slightly seven-year-old. Twenty-seven year old. Twenty-seven year old, and and today as a twenty-eight year old, um, media age, <laughs> media age is the fact that it's the Ripley scene at the beginning. Well, it's the aliens popping out of the chest because it's pretty fucking terrifying concept. Kill me, <laughs> kill me, kill me. That's what's terrifying about that scene is that the way she's looking at you, go kill me, and then once again Ripley has that PTSD. But let's not skirt over. And I'm sorry, yes, it's an action film, but it's great acting from Sigourney Weaver because her reaction, she doesn't say anything. She's watching it on the, the camera pain. feed and you see her go through so many, this is my serious face, <laughs> this is my... No, but you go, it's a very, it's a wordless bit of great acting from her. And yes, it's an action film, it's not going to get any awards, but that's what pinged with me this time was... Was well, the level of her acting in that scene is because she's it's just all in her face. Well, she she uh, was nominated for an Oscar best best actress Academy Award, and it was the first time for a an actress in a action movie. I think it's career best for her. Yeah, she's had a very varied career. She's done some very interesting roles, but I don't think it is a disservice to say this is her greatest role. I also think it shows the most, you know, it has the most variety, and, uh, and that's why it's. I think it's a role that she keeps being lured back to because it has, well, it did have that growth of. In the original Alien, it was originally written that they were interchangeable in terms of the characters; they could be played by male or female, and it just they decide to flip it by saying originally Ripley was going to be a man in the original script, and then they flipped it. Bloody bloke, but. It makes it such a more compelling story. The fact that it is the sort of all the heroic guys, that's one of the main twists of Alien. All the, the heroic men get killed off and she's the survivor. But then it's the James Cameron twist. Like you said, a bit like Sarah Connor, it is. And what is the progression of that character? How do they react? How do they, conti they continue? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Mm. But it's funny how that would become... I, th I think we use iconic too much in this podcast, but that would become a signature move for both Cameron and by a lesser extent, Luc Besson, which is yeah. the strong female character against all odds. But in this, I think in this film and to give credit to Sir Ridley in the first film, it's so unassuming. You don't see it coming. You don't think in the first film, you don't think she's going to yeah. make it. And in the second film, it's like, because they show the alien dream thing at the start, I think the message from Cameron is she is expendable. I do yeah. I do think that that is a slight almost deft nudge is that if you don't th if you think she's going to survive here's a dream sequence mm. to throw you off course. And yeah, such a strong character but this is early in his career and it would become a staple for him. I mean mm. look, he's producing no but, no but I think that's the the strength of Cameron's the fact that he can take those familiar elements and twist them 
on, on its head. It's like, okay, they could easily have, as I say, they could have, you know, done the typical horror film. How many horror films? I said, it's not my strength. So uh, I'm generalizing, but like the Nightmare on Elm Street films or the Jason films, it's the same villain, but it's a new cast of teens. It could be the same alien and a different cast of, you know, people to pick off. But the thing that makes the Aliens films interesting and maybe to a lesser extent why the the prequels, the Prometheus and Covenant films haven't worked is because the Alien films had that, you had Ripley's story, but you also had the Alien story was evolving as well. Well, yeah, you had stories because that's what I think has been missing from the recent ones. So where are we, George? We are... We're still on LV426. No, no, no. So we Um, we, we haven't... you, You know where we are? When the aliens are released, what's going to happen? Let's rock! Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That great... Do we need to talk about Screaming Wings? I don't think that'll appeal to the audience. So just a quick caveat for anybody <laughs> who was playing with a Commodore Amiga in the nineteen was it, was it, was late it, 1980s. Screaming Wings was on the... Com- was it the Commodore 64? Uh, it was either Commodore Amiga, the Amiga... Should we just stop this chat now? No, I mean, no, no. I know I, we've got a strong base in the gaming community, George, but... I, I think I think we need to do this just okay. out of loyalty to the Glendonings and the And Feenies. the Feenies. Right, so there was a computer game completely unrelated to this film. And Probably it was, in a time where licensing wasn't very hot. Yeah, so top-down view, you're in a plane, typical Space Invaders no, type... No, no, it was a World War Two. Yeah, that was fighter the, jet. That was the thing. So you're in a World War II fighter jet, top down. But whenever the game started, it lifted the sound bite of Hit Hudson. Vasquez. Yeah. Oh that- no, no, it is Vasquez saying, "Let's rock." And then when you died, you had Hudson saying, "Game over, man. Game over." So yeah, it was a an Amiga game or Commodore 64 game called Screaming Wings. And I think it And was if fun. anyone else has memories of this, please write in and please let us know. Please message and we will mention you on the next podcast because, because that's how niche this podcast is. We are not crazy. When that software shall be presented. Game over, man. Game over. Have we lost anyone? Uh... Yes, yeah, lo- loads of loads. Apoc, we lost. Uh, yeah, um, Vasquez's uh, uh, Rico, Rico. What's his name? Frost, I think he's called. There's loads of them. Ens- um, Ensign rookie. But the only person, people that hasn't died, is Lieutenant Gorman or the the, the chief, who is a loser. Yeah. He's panicking behind the scenes. Ripley just elbows him out of the way. She gets into the APC, and uh, what a, what a bit of set design that is i mean that vehicle still looks it's like a batmobile it do you know what that amazing. vehicle actually was in reality it was a, a batmobile well <laughs> probably built by the same people uh, at pinewood but it was um oh no no it's got to be one of the airport yeah uh, it's yeah, one it's of those things that, that drags the the the, the, the planes the plane out, yeah. uh, uh, it's an air, airplane carrier airplane ready, tower ready to taxi I love the the fact that when they're going through the doors, the the turret slides to the back. That's a very a, clever bit of that's work. pure Cameron model design. What, what what if we just pull the gun back? What sort of technology would they have? Why don't we just do some more gunishment? <laughs> so yeah, they've lost all the team. They're all freaking out. They don't know what to do. And you've got some great tension between Hicks and Ripley. You've got. I say the Hicks role is not a showy role, but the way he go, where she's like, 
you come from orbit. That's the only way to be sure. And like, and then he's like, I think Hicks is in command. He's like, yep, you come from orbit. But it is, it is a very good, it's, it, it, I think, cause that's why whenever I see his performance in this, the question in my head is, was this after or before Terminator? I mean, in terms of filming. So he'd done Terminator, even though it hadn't been, Terminator hadn't been released in the UK. He had done Terminator when yeah. he did Aliens. Terminator, yet, whilst they were filming it, Terminator hadn't been released. The reason I asked the question is that maybe for American audiences, it was slightly more obvious that he was going to make it a bit longer. Do you know what I mean? A bit longer in the film because of Terminator? Maybe. Do you know what I mean? Because, like, it's, it's, it's that thing when you watch this film, it's like he's so subtle in the first half of the film. And then he becomes more and more apparent right up until the point where he's taken out by some a little, a little bit of acid. Just a tiny amount of acid. But yeah, we've got the whole bit with the sentry guns, which is extended in the extended cut, but it's great tension watching the bullet count go down. And it's like... And all the noises. <laughs> well, that, that leads me to uh, occasional feature. Show me the monkey. Oh my God. Is it's, it monkey magic? Uh, no. So apparently the eight... This is just a quick one. There's no monkeys in suits. There's no aliens dressed up as monkeys. There's no monkeys dressed up as aliens, there's, I think you mean. <laughs> no aliens dressed up as monkeys. <laughs> that too. Um, there's, no, there's no monkeys on roller skates. However, the alien screams, especially when the sentry guns are going up, are baboon shrieks altered in post-production. I love that. So so there you go. Occasional feature, show me the monkey. I like it. I like it. It's 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 here to stay. So is this before or after No no, we have skipped the Carter Burke face huggers. So yeah, no no the, the, the sentry guns is just before they, they set them up, the bullets are going through them because the I think in the extended version, they test it a few times, but then it gets to the, that's the thing. There's so much going on. The aliens are testing the sentry guns. They then realize the reactor to the processing plant is overheating. You know what this film needs is a ticking clock. <laughs> a ticking clock. And, and one of the things that annoys me about this film, it, it is a bit of a plot hole, is why is there no one on, left on the ship? On the Sulaco. Yeah, I I didn't actually pick up on that until watching it this time. Really? Well, I was like, why? Well, that's it. So there's only them? That, that's so that, they all went down? That, that's the thing that really annoys me. And, and I think I have noticed this before, is the fact that for all the, the weaponry, the bravado, the big ship... So they all go on the ship, everyone then they goes all get down. on the APC, and they all go down... What if they all die? There's just the spaceship just floating around well, exactly. in space. That that is, I love this film, and and I don't want to get anyone anyone to be like. But we're trying to look angry. smart. We're trying to pick it apart. But <laughs> that is a it is a, a plot hole. Like, should you leave one person on board or leave the android on board? Yeah, but I mean, obviously they get around it in terms of oh, I can re can remote in and what have you. But it seems so weird that. They wouldn't leave in every unmanned, sci-fi unmanned. In, yeah. in every sci-fi film, they always leave somebody. There on is a much lesser paid character actor willing to stay on the ship and appear for five minutes at the start and the end of the film. Yes, there's the ticking time bomb of the reactor. 
but that lovely trustworthy man in the Gile, Carter Burke, has been a real shit. It unleashed those those pesky face huggers whilst Ripley and Newt are sleep having nice sleep in the Met Lab. What could possibly go wrong? It's one of those things because there's a lot of tension in this scene, and it's like the thing that you don't actually see the face huggers in action because they're a big part of the first film, and they're te- and like, but the whole when I was watching it this time was looking at the motion of them and. It's really eerie. I when you see I, the way that they move. I think Cameron's the, ramped that up. And the way they scuttle across the ground and everything about them, about the way that they, they trap them. And I love the fact that it's a team effort, that everyone's having to like just find a way through. Like Ripley's setting off the fire alarm and Burke's like just turning off the cameras because he's such a douche. Then they all turn up, they break through the glass and even taking them out, a whole team of them, it's still... You know what I mean? Well, that's it. It's like pinning them against the wall, and and I love that thing for Hudson because he's like, he's like, yeah, and you can see he's like letting off. Well, some that's real it's stress. like shoot the glass, jumping through the glass. Yes, yeah. no, it's it's a, it's an amazing scene, and again, it's just ramping up that tension. It's it's a really horrible, terrifying scene. Well, it's the confinement. You know, yeah. it's the fact that they've gone to sleep in a room, then suddenly they're locked in the room, they can't a get out of it. A soundless room. A, sound, a sound, nope. yeah. soundproof room, full of cameras, full of security. For me, it's a nice segue between two scenes of, you've got all this action, you've got setting up the sentries, but this scene stands alone. And then there's more action, but it is one of those... And breathe. You know, we're on yeah. a we're on a roller coaster ride. There's all this action. But, but that's a brilliant thing. And it's though. a nice bit of tension. That, that that's all done and dusted, and then the alarm goes off, and the aliens have yet again broken the perimeter and the last of the sentry guns. So again, it's like, oh, everything's okay. No, hang on. The reactor's still counting down, and the aliens are still breaking in the defenses, and we're running out of ammo. And it's like, okay, and. And we haven't got a dropship. It's like, we are fucked. And that's that's what I love, the fact that it, it isn't just the threat of the aliens. It's it's all these other, like, it's a way that Cameron keeps ramping up the tensions. Like, okay, well, yeah, you've got that immediate threat and you've got this, you've got that. Oh, and yeah, you haven't got a ship. And but that's- like, your ship's going to go by the, un- well, we'll send the untrustworthy robot. But, you know, that'll be fine. But that's why... You could argue that some foreshadowing in films, not just today, but before, is lazy. It's like, oh, look, here's this thing that has no particular relevance in the film, but then pops up in Act 3. We like, for- we forgot- check out my sweet power loader skills. No, but I'm saying we've forgotten about the order loader. We've- so is it order loader or power loader? We uh, forgot Power loader. We've forgotten about the power loader because we're too busy dealing with the aliens on the ground. Plus, it's on the ship and it has no use because the aliens aren't going to get back to it. Aliens aren't going to possibly get there. But there's the fact that there is this, you know, this thing about Cameron ramping it up. It's the fact that how hard can it be? How bad can shit get? And and he keeps on turning it and twisting it. And and as I say, there is tension within the tension. And part of you watching this, I'm sure some people felt this watching this the first time. It's probably just going to be Ripley who gets away and yeah. maybe with a little girl. Yeah. But you're still interested. It's like James Bond. He's going to survive, yeah. but how is he going to get there? And there's part of that going on, but he keeps on twisting it and turning it. And she's not all guns blazing. You know, she's like hands on, but it's not apparent that she's going to save the day. 
in one film, Cameron creates tension, he creates plots, and he, you think it's going to happen one way, but then he ramps it up and completely left sides yeah. you. And he's still doing it today. But it's, it's not until the very end that Ripley, as you say, is Ripley is prompted to pick up a gun and to do the the Rambo thing. Well, where... we haven't well we haven't done this for a few um, podcasts, but that is the Act Three. Like what we're talking about, you know, you've got Act One, which is on the setup, them going there and them arriving. You've got Act Two, which is them landing and first, con to shit. first contact with the aliens and regrouping. There's the scene yeah. we we're just talking about where Burke releases the facehuggers. And then you've got what I'd say second contact. And then, you know, which is when yeah. we lose Gorman and Vasquez and they're in the, the air vents. That's a brilliant scene. Again, I've always hated you, Gorman. It's it's a yeah. great sign off. Yeah, and it's the way um, Cameron talks about this in the special features that he spent a lot of time. They they only had like, amazingly, they only had six alien suits. They only had budget for six alien suits. So it's all in the editing to make it feel like there's a lot more. So in only in in one shot, you'll only see six aliens at a time. But they spent a lot of time and money developing with gymnasts and acrobats how they moved. And they said they wanted to make it feel because you don't really see them move that much. They in, always look like they're uncoiling from yeah, well, something. Well, that's it. And, it. and it's a way that they move in the air ducts, like they're, like they're being pulled on wires, the way that like they're scuttling like lizards. And they said they spent so much time developing that to make it feel inhuman. Because that's, you know, we talked about it earlier about how much time has passed and what the hell's happened to everybody else on LV 46. And my point or the um, realisation or, or, or what I basically say to myself is that what's happened in, in between Burke telling the perfect parents to go and check out that alien ship and when they arrive, because they said there's, what, 50 families with, with kids? Yeah. So I'm guessing all of those a have being, become a, aliens. Yeah. And that's the cannon fodder for the drone guns. Yes. And what the, and that's, I think everyone agrees with that. And so that's why it kind of works, but it doesn't, it, I always forget about that until the bit when they're coming through the air vents in the ceiling, you know, and it's like, they're six meters, three still, meters. Still terrifies me. Brilliant tension building. Mm. It's like they're in the room. And How as is I that say possible? that, but going back to what you're saying is that there was only six suits. And that, and that, that cuts back to, the Cameron lo-fi, low-budget roots of, I can make this work, I can make this believable. It's just how you edit it. It's just repositioning them to make it feel the room is full of aliens because oh, they're over there, they're over there. It's just how you cut it. It's so ironic that here's a guy who's come from making films with nothing is the highest grossing director of all time. It's, 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 it's funny that the fact that this film is the sort of antithesis of, you know, these... They've spent so much time in the model work, on the on the Alien Queen, on the sets and everything like that. But yeah, yet he at the same time has pioneered, you know, the future of CGI. You know, and the work, yeah. digital worlds. It's it's uh, it's phenomenal. But you know, I, I think he gets a lot of stick for for Avatar. But the man is always trying to push the medium of film. Him and Robert Zemeckis. I was just going to say yeah. Zemeckis and. I thought of Zemeckis in the, when you're talking about Sigourney Weaver. It's almost like these are people who are so artistic, they almost pick their projects. You know, they're, yeah. they're, when the time is right, they'll step up. So there is 
But then, then it Newt being uh, lo- lost to the machine. And again, that's a, a horrible Newt. scene where she just lands in the sewers and the, the alien just appears behind. No, but the, the scene for scene from... Sorry, yes. No, you're right, because that to me is one of the most iconic scenes yeah. of... Um, and I think it was used when it was on TV to advertise it. Of, hey, kids. Of the quadrilogy. Yeah, no, but uh, was was her in the sewers and the alien coming up yeah. behind her. No, but the other link back to Terminator 2 is... So there's Reese, there's Ripley, and there's Newt. And losing and, and, it down the thing. And they lose it to a machine. A the machine. machine swallows her up, much like... Edward Norton, of the machine. Edward Norton gets yep. swallowed up by the conveyor belt. Never noticed that. I point. hadn't before until mm. we started playing Drinking Machine Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, James Cameron has a thing for guns. He loves all guns. He has things for, for guns, chicks with guns, and machines so with guns. So basically, he, he, he loves, so he hates machines. He loves, he loves chicks. <laughs> and he loves guns. He hates all machines apart from guns. But he hates machines with guns. But he likes chicks with guns. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad really we cleared that up. <laughs> it was just for everybody else who's out there. So, so Newt is gone. Hicks is injured. So Ripley goes all John Rambo, John Matrix. Loads up. Great suiting up scene. She's got the, uh, the pulse rifle, the flamethrower, the explosive rounds... The tracker, there's just ticking clock of when the reactor's going to fire off. I'm sorry, but for me, I'm just seeing like a highly functional female multitasking. She's and like, why carry two guns? Like, we've gone... We're at the, you imagine what's going on at this time. Like, the films that Arnie and Sylvester Sloan are making, it's like, gun in each arm, big pecs. And she's like, guys, you're idiots. Just tape them together. And carry it in two hands. And she's very, very efficient because... And she's got the tracker. She, you no, know, she's got the tracker, but she's going bit by bit, firing fl- bursts she's of flames. She's using flares to find her way back. Just just like Hansel and Gretel. Using little crumbs. No, but it's once again more evidence of why, you know, women should be leading the fight. Women, we should send women into war. She's ready for serious alien gunnishment. So apparently, according to Trivia Online, and I didn't, I should have, I I should have gone back and timed this, but as soon as the computer says 15 minutes to explosion, shut down, what have you, is exactly 15 minutes in the film. I did not know that. And that does not surprise me. Cameron being such a perfectionist, I would not be surprised if he's like, Okay, yeah. Stop watch. <laughs> what are we running on yet? Yeah, get rid of that. Once again, to go back to your, your point earlier, that was probably an editing decision. Yeah, exactly. I it mean, was like, no, we've got to get this down to 15 minutes. And that's it, I, th- I think. And that probably stems from him getting annoyed like we used to do. And I think this has been parodied in films. So T minus 10 seconds and counting. Then you watch about 30, 30 seconds. seconds of footage. T minus six seconds and counting. And Why it's annoying. You? And I think that's what his yeah. response is. But you have, yeah, you have that whole tension of her going through floor by floor, bursts of the, the flamethrower. Unnecessary use of the flamethrower is the only thing I've pointed out. No, no, I, th- I, th- I think she's storming through. She's protecting herself going through floor by floor. I think she's just a bit trigger happy with that Tr- flame. Tr- yeah. <laughs> she's gone all gunishment. <laughs> She rescues Newt. 
and then meets the queen and then decides to go all gunishment. No, but she reneges on the deal. That's what I love about that scene, because if you watch the intricacies of it, is that you've got... The queen's going to let you, it go. You've got the queen going... <sighs> Sorry, I'm doing alien queen... Charlie's, arm. Charlie's got his hands up. I'm doing alien queen arm motions here. So you've got the alien queen in centre stage. She's attached to her egg... Egg sack. Her sack... God, that doesn't sound very queen-like, George. But um, it's an egg sack. And then you get th what I can only describe as like you know the the guards come out well, on the, either the side warriors, of the warriors, yeah. And Ripley gives the queen a look because, like with men, it would be like useless dialogue. But Ripley and the queen just have a moment, and Ripley's like, "Tell your guards to back off, or, or I'm going to uh, blow up yeah. all your babies." And the queen's like, "Whoa, uh, this bitch is real." Guys, back away. So what She's the, a fierce mama bear. So what the alien queen does, I've got the arms up again, is like, <sighs> and the guards disappear. And so Ripley's got Newt, and she's backing out. And then she's and like... And just as she backs out, one of the eggs open, and you know what Ripley does? She's like, you know our deal? I'm just going to renege that. And she just... It's Ripley... Who is the one who reneges on the deal? It's a bit like Rambo 3, which Cameron didn't write, but when it's like, <laughs> what are we going to do, Johnny? Fuck him. <laughs> gunishment. Yeah. Total and, gunishment and for everybody. Like flamethrower, explosive rounds. She is purging her PTSD. And I just think that's the moment when all of the guys in the audience who weren't sure if they could connect with this strong female lead with the short that's hair that's when they connect <laughs> with the short hair who looks a bit like a boy and in that kick, first scene kick-ass Nikes I'm not going to go into the fact that the first time I saw a poster of Alien I thought that Scorny Weaver was it a was, boy was, let's not it, talk about that it was Laurie Petty I thought it was a young boy <laughs> and I didn't realise that I would later believe that to be Laurie Petty no that that is that scene it's like she's like yeah you know how I said, let all your alien babies live? I lied. And you know, they're all going to be nuked in minutes. They're going to die now. That's the, the other thing <laughs> that I wanted to get to is like, if she gets out of the, if she, the time that she takes to toast all of the alien babies, I mean, they really do cut it close at the end. She probably could have got away with it. She could have no. got in the lift without calling the other lift. So we now arrive at what I've decided is my favorite scene in the entire film, the voted best sequel ever is the alien queen taking a ride in the lift. Waiting for the lift. Waiting for the lift. Getting, getting in, the lift. in the lift. What does she do in the lift? Is she checking Instagram? <sighs> is she, which floor? I just like the idea that she's seething, just going, that fucking bitch that's coming in. My babies, my poor babies have all been blown up. But like, which floor is it again? Is it? Is that's it what I was 15? thinking. It's just like I always get confused. I never remember the layout of this place. Is it the fifty-second floor? <laughs> Why am I back in reception? For fuck's sake, take me back this up to the Ripley the, floor. This isn't the sales floor. <laughs> this is accounting. <laughs> I do think that they must have had fun making that scene. So how does the alien ship? How does the alien get back on? What's oh, it called? Oh, uh, Sulaco. So how are we going to get the alien back up there? And you can just imagine Cameron just going, well, um, she sneaks aboard the dropship. Well, when does she do that? Well, when they're on the landing platform. So how does the alien get up to the landing platform? Well, she gets in the elevator. Gets a lift like everyone else, you idiot. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, Jim. <laughs> alien, I've got my arms up again. <laughs> we've both, we've, we've both, both got, got our arms up. Armor. 
Uh, that's that's how I and I think Jim. <laughs> I think that's how. And that's he, why she has little arms. What you mean the T Rex? T Rex T Rex hates press ups. We we've we've already talked about this in our Jurassic Park episode, but just think, James Cameron was moments away from making Jurassic Park. God, what a film that would have been. <laughs> Similarly for the noises. So yeah, I've got that uh, Queen versus so, Queen. So the, the film isn't over yet. Neither is this podcast. Because Bishop hasn't been turned into spaghetti rotten milk yet. So uh, but we have left LV46. We're back which on has the, been nuked. But it's a but James by, Cameron film. <laughs> by forces outside of our control. Nuclear war is wrong. This is still corporate 80s America. So there are nukes. Yeah. It's just wrong. It's good to have nukes. It's bad to use them. So we're back on the Salako. Everything's fine and dandy. Um, Ripley's got over a PTSD because uh, she's, got there. she's got over a hate of simulated artificial humans. They're getting on really well. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Is that some acid on the floor? What is the most honourable way to die if you're an android impaled by an alien queen? We've got <laughs> Chekhov's power loader. Okay. If you've got a power loader, you're going to use it. Get away from her, you bitch! Probably one of the most quotable lines in the film. And when I saw this at the Royal Albert Hall, it got the biggest reaction. It's that last word. It's the yeah. way she says it. And yeah, the, the whole place erupted at, at that and but it's queen versus queen yeah. Do you know what i mean it is very what, freddie mercury versus <laughs> the alien queen i don't want to think about <laughs> a dangerous freddie mercury versus the alien queen because i'm not sure who would win have you, could, you, could you imagine Freddie Mercury in an autoloader? Have you seen that guy moves? That guy moves. I mean, he'd be dangerous. Just just him dancing in a power loader. Another one bites the dust. No, I mean... Spin off. <laughs> We're not there yet, George. So, basically, a right hook and a left hook, but there is some great fighting. There's a lot of wish fulfillment, geek fulfillment in terms of this fight. And... We've come to another T2 thing. Oh, look, the alien's trapped in the airlock. I'm going to get away. But no, that's, an, that's a hand on the ankle. Yeah. Terminator 2. Hand on the ankle. And I love the fact that Ripley is hanging off the airlock just by using the crook of her arm. But that's, that's fine. No, I think I think they probably tested that out in a space station on LV forty six. No, but it did look like something she'd been trained to do. To be fair, because oh, uh, I had the same reaction. It was like that wouldn't work. And the great thing is about the story, it's happily ever after. So her and Yuta's safe. She's she saved Hicks. I'm gonna have <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna have some sweet dreams. Yeah, and what could possibly go wrong in Dreams or in another sequel, David Fincher? David thanks, Fincher, thanks. Thank David, you, David Fincher. David Fincher, I'm going to kill you all. I don't think David gonna, Fincher wrote the script. I'm going to kill you all. I'm going to shave off your hair, Ripley, and you're going you're gonna to be eaten by a dog. <laughs> wake, what's the worst you can think of? I don't know, me waking up in a male prison? Gonna okay. You're going to wake up in a male prison with no hair, and the aliens can be made out of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why would you say something? Which neatly brings us to our weekly yet monthly feature of Suspicious Spin-Offs. So I always do with Suspicious Spin-Offs, um, obviously there's been multiple alien sequels, there's been 
Alien and Predator. What? Films that we don't talk about. But we don't talk about AVP. We had this agreement. It's in the contract. But they di- there was a recent release, a book, a picture, a book, a book, <laughs> a, a, a book, um, a cartoon um, about the adventures of Jonesy the cat, Ripley's cat. What the actual fuck are you talking about? Yeah, I, I know. It sounds like <laughs> a che- it sounds like a cheese dream, but a bit like the Die Hard coloring book. I think it's a tongue in cheek cartoon thing for adults about what Ripley's cat got up to when the alien was was uh, moving around. So stating in her body. Yeah. But in terms of what I would suggest as a, a spin-off, it's been done in video games, but I think as we, we've talked about in this film, I think we'd like to see more of the colonial marines. I mean obviously that's it pretty much plays into the Starship Troopers thing, but they're great characters. I would just love to see them on missions. Whatever happened to that computer game? What, Colonial Marines? Was it just shit? Yeah, just yeah. Sank, sank like stone. I just remember that the the highlight of that game was the motion sensors <laughs> that they used the sound. No, well, no, no. They, they hyped that up so much. I think it was PlayStation 3 game. They Two, like, buddy. No, no. It was, uh, I think it was PS3. They hyped it up as like a an official sequel prequel to to aliens basically we were scoring permission to use the sound files <laughs> well, no, they've been doing that for a while um but it was the fact that it was like what i think with the characters with hicks and hudson and co uh and it was just a horrible game in terms of the gameplay and design it was an absolute shit fest that they're my suggestions you got anything else you got anything for me you suspicious spin-offs well i would like to know is I've said this Carter Burke Burke at school at law school I want to see Carter Burke at law school because I mean 57 years have passed since the original Alien right and I just I don't know I'd I'd really like to see the film that maketh the man so I think he's had some he's got he's had some sort of trauma like you don't just he was bullied bullied as a child because you know what I mean he's young but he's such a douche so that's my suspicious spin-off number one the other one is the film that I still want to be made which is let's forget about Alien 3 and Ripley Hicks and Newt get off the planet reconnect with civilization and it becomes there's there's a follow-up you know with more marines that's what I would like to see I think it's kind of what everyone would like to see, and if Ridley Scott had probably worked with Cameron, we could have even seen, you know, some amazing amalgamation of talent. But no. So that leads us on to releasing Jeff and Celine. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. So speaking of James Cameron, um, apparently... Uh, Actor Stephen Lang auditioned for the roles of Carter Burke and Dwayne Hicks. Dwayne is Hicks's first name, by the way. So, sorry, who is Stephen Lang? Stephen Lang is the hard-ass Marine from Avatar, which, ironically, James Cameron wanted Michael Bean to play that role in Avatar. <laughs> but he wasn't available or something. George, so, George, are we still in suspicious spin-offs? Because no, not at all. Now I'm just imagining an Aliens with Stephen Lang 
and an avatar with, with Michael, Michael Bean. Bean. <laughs> so, and yeah. both of them still being in both films. So, yes, Stephen Lang is amazing. He is uh, he's brilliant in Avatar. Uh, he needs. He's, he's in. He, he should be in more films. No, he crops. Yeah, he's a no, ca- but, great character. But he's, yeah, he crops up in loads of films. I noticed him recently. He's in Tombstone. Yeah, but yeah, he needs to be in more films. So yeah, he originally auditioned for the role of of Hicks and Carter Burke. But in a similar uh, instance of we talked about in uh, Back to the Future with Eric Stoltz and Michael J. Fox replacing him, Hicks was originally played by James Remar. Another name I do not know. He is in the Warriors film, and he also plays... um, You will recognise him. He's in 48 Hours uh, Later. I think he's he's in one of the 48 Hours films. He plays Raiden in the sequel to Mortal Kombat. Do you mean another 48 Hours? Yes. 48 Hours Later, I call it. Yeah. That's the, that's the film that's coming out next year. The 48 Hours <laughs> Later with a very, very old and even no, more No, no, it's when zombies turn up. Oh, okay. <laughs> Is Nick Nolte the zombie? 48 Hours Later. <laughs> okay, Nick, let it go. There's, there's, there's a random spin-off for you. So, yeah, James James Remar is a fairly famous actor. but So, he was supposed to play Hicks. He did the SAS training. He's even in some shots. Um, and then... That are in the film. In the, in the film. <laughs> so, is he, I take it he's credited. No, he's not credited, but... Um, no, we're going to use it, but I'm going to pay you. Uh, but the uh, official reason for him not being in the film was creative differences but apparently he recently was on a podcast and he admitted that he was actually fired from production because he was busted for possession of drugs considering you're on when you're on a cast of paul riser and you're the douche who gets fired <laughs> i mean what does that say about you so that yeah coulda, woulda, shoulda. that's coulda woulda shoulda so yeah i think we've been rambling long enough anything else to say george i think this film is worthy of its best sequel ever status. I think it is Cameron, you know, as we've talked about with Terminator 2, he has a skill at taking familiar story elements, twisting them, playing with audience expectations. But also you can go into this film without seeing Alien and you can still appreciate it and you can be invested in it. I think it has been so influential on the rest of the series. It's We've talked about it being influential on, on other films, on other similar series like Predator. And I don't think it can be bettered. But if w- the one thing that keeps me hopeful for is, I mean, a lot of people are bad-mouthing and have just run out of patience and expectation. But James Cameron it has been busying himself away for the past 10 years on Avatar sequels. But as history has shown, if anyone can do a a good sequel, it's James Cameron. So I, for one, like Sarah Connor, look forward to the future with hope. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, like you, his films do mean a lot. Everything, even Titanic, I can see why it's been successful. Not enough aliens in Titanic. I think that's the problem I have with it. Or nukes. No nukes, no pulsar rifles, but um, power loaders. We can't do this film justice. We've tried to. 
we've been lost in, in a rabbit warren. We've got, you know, you've An got alien's a... nest. This is a film that means a lot to George and I. It means a lot to, I think, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast. And more importantly, it means a lot for cinema. You know, it has done a lot for cinema. Hugely influential. If he hadn't made success with this and Terminator, we wouldn't have, have had Avatar. This is his second official film. Yeah, so monumental. Mm. So we, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you want to listen to the uh, full director's cut of this episode, um, it's not available. <laughs> <laughs> we'll release it in five years' time. Once we've finished with our seven sequels. Well, if you've enjoyed listening to this ramble, and uh, if you you have, you know, George, it's off. not going to be as long as it's been for you because I'm going to edit out all the boring bits. I was going to suggest they check out our Terminator Two podcast. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities with the T Two podcast, and if if you've listened to T Two, then you'll you'll see them. But you know, we respect this guy, and he's a great filmmaker. You know, mm. he's he's giving us what we want, and. So is Ridley Scott. It has to, we wouldn't have aliens, was it not for Ridley Scott? And it's, I just wish that Ridley had been more like Jimmy Cameron. Like Jimmy Cameron has taken his time, he's taken a rest, he's planned his projects, and I just feel like Ridley's, Sir Ridley has got a bit caught up in the mechanism of filmmaking itself, but time will tell. We'll, we'll see. But uh, anyway, thank you for listening. Follow us on all the social medias. Thank you for sharing. This podcast is available on Spotify, on iTunes. Wherever you get your podcasts. So I've been Charlie McGee. I've been George McGee. And we will see you next time when we will be back with... Where so, are we going? Are we going... George, I'm feeling a bit tense. Feeling like there's some chase music coming on. Dun, 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 dun. So I can't remember the name of the film. Something about a bus that couldn't slow down. Okay, but we will be back. We're going back to the 1990s. Um, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye.